All right, we're going to, even though it's 429, we have a lot to do. So we're going to get started. And um, this is, Ross, I forgot, are we recording tonight? It's recording now. So now for all eternity, me asking, are we recording, is going to be on the recording. So this is session two, officially, um, doing Bible survey. Tonight we're doing the Pentateuch and Genesis. So we'll see if we can do that in the next hour or so. So let's pray and, and we'll get started. Thank you, Father, for this time on a beautiful Sunday afternoon to have worshiped you this morning uh, through our songs and our fellowship and our prayers and our offerings and the preached word and um, all the joys that go along with worshiping you. And this afternoon now, Lord, to simply put into our minds more knowledge of God, more knowledge of your word. And we pray, Lord, I pray especially for those who have not gone through BTI yet, that they would um, be able to get up to speed and uh, keep up uh, mentally and emotionally and learn all that they can so that we might be better worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that in his name. Amen. If I remember, usually at the start of every module, uh, which I didn't get to be here for the start of this one, but at the start of every module, um, we always say the Bible Training Institute motto. So let's get awake and we'll say it together. To proactively accelerate the spiritual growth of Grace Bible Church for the purpose of knowing God more intimately and becoming more effective servants of God in the world. Here's the main purpose, knowing God more intimately. Not to know stuff about God, that's the means, but to know God and to be able to worship Him. So we're doing the Pentateuch and Genesis. Uh, Interestingly enough, when I put all this together, I hadn't preached through the Pentateuch yet. And so if you want to get about 20 times more than what we're going to do tonight, uh, I would encourage you to listen to the Pentateuch Series 1. It's on our website. It's also uh, more easily accessed on the Steadfast in the Faith website. But those five messages, um, I spent about six months putting those together. So uh, it's it's rich, and I think it'll help you. So tonight, we'll just kind of hit a few little highlights The Pentateuch and Genesis. So we're going to look first just overall at the Pentateuch, and then we'll get into Genesis. Um, I like to call it the Torah, but nobody nobody knows what that is. It just means the law. That is what uh, Jews call the Pentateuch. They call it the Torah. Just means direction, instruction, or law. We have developed the name Pentateuch, which just comes from the Greek word, uh, two words, penta for five and tukas for volume, a five-volumed book. So the first thing you need to know about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is that it is one book with one overriding theme and thought, and it simply is put together into uh, five sections. <clears throat> There's a lot of mystery around why uh, it wasn't put together as one book uh, probably the best theory is that when you have a scroll of all five books of the Pentateuch together it may be uncarryable Um, and so there there, there's a lot of evidence that it was divided into five scrolls and so that made it easier to understand or to to carry around the Bible itself gives many names to the Torah and I gave you a little list there calls it the law the book of the law, the book of the law of Moses, the book of Moses, the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, the law of God, the book of the law of God, the book of the law of the Lord. Now, what word is in almost every single one of those? Law. That's right. 
So generally speaking, when you read in the New Testament about the law, you can default to the Pentateuch, to the Torah. Sometimes the law is used to refer to all of the Old Testament, but you use context to determine that. So uh, the law is the, that, that is a major word, our understanding of the Pentateuch. Now, what is important about this uh, beginning of the Bible here? Just a couple of very brief points here. First of all, its foundation is the foundation of spiritual insight. This is how we know what is spiritual. This is how we know what is true in the Bible. And I gave you some references there. I think I did. Yes. Uh, well, just one. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Um, let me give you a couple of others. Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 9, speaks of the spiritual insight of the, the Torah. Deuteronomy 31, verse 9. And then Joshua 1, 7 and 8 also. Joshua 1, 7 and 8. And then the Pentateuch is also important because it points to Christ. Luke twenty four twenty seven, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, this is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in the New Testament and to a Jew, when you say, have you read Moses? They're speaking of the Torah, of the Pentateuch. And so when Jesus gave that uh, greatest of all Old Testament sermons, which we don't have recorded, just that one verse, uh, on the road to Emmaus, he said, beginning with Moses, he, concer- he spoke to the things concerning himself. So that's just big, broad importance. Major themes in Pentateuch. And again, we're just, you'll see all of these themes as we go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But major themes, obviously the first one has to be God. He is presented, first of all, as the creator. And there is, there's nothing really in scripture that says, I'm going to prove, here's proof that God exists, here's proof that God is the creator. It just simply starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, scripture does mock the one who doesn't believe God is the creator, mocks the one who doesn't believe in God, but he's presented as the creator. He is presented as the powerful one. Genesis 6 through 9 his power in the flood. He's presented as uh, powerful in Exodus 7 through 11 with all the plagues. Exodus 14 with the, um, the, the Red Sea incident. He's presented as the, the faithful one. His faithfulness is presented all through uh, the Pentateuch and certainly his sovereignty, which we'll look at a little more in detail here in a bit. So he's presented as creator, the faithful one, the, 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 the powerful one rather, the faithful one, the sovereign one. So God obviously is the major theme. So when you tell somebody you should read the Bible and they ask you why, it's very simple. So you can know God because that's, what, that's how the Bible starts. That's how it ends. Then you have the major theme of covenant. This is a relationship between two parties formalized by a binding agreement and a sworn oath. It's a big deal. A, a covenant is not, I'll meet you at Starbucks at 4.30. That, that's not a covenant. A covenant is, I will meet you at Starbucks at 4.30. And if I fail to do so, may all of my grandchildren have warts on their toes. And may everything bad happen to me and everything good happen to you. Now we're more in the area of covenant. That it's binding and there's, there's an oath involved. You have multiple covenants listed in the Pentateuch. You have the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah. They have the Abrahamic covenant, God's 
covenant with Abraham. We'll look at that in detail in a few minutes. You have the Mosaic covenant, which is not my favorite term for it. It is the, um, the covenant uh, that was mediated by Moses. But the other covenants in the Bible generally list the people with whom the covenant is made. Um, the, God didn't make a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with Israel. So probably a better term for the Mosaic covenant is the Israelite covenant. Some call it the Sinaitic covenant for, the, for Mount Sinai where the covenant was given. And then you have the priestly covenant from Numbers 25. I won't take a lot of time to explain that, but I did preach a whole message on the priestly covenant uh, just a few weeks ago in Numbers 25. As you might expect, we also have the major theme of sin. God, covenant, and sin. Right there is uh, a, almost a gospel presentation that you have God and you have sin and you need a covenant to join uh, God to sinners. And so there, there right there is a small gospel presentation. Sin is a major theme in all five books. <clears throat> sin is a major theme in most books of the Bible. In fact, we would say all of them. So that's a, that's a no-brainer. But particularly in the Pentateuch, sin is a major theme. Why? Well, because we see the story of the beginning of sin. And so that's very important for us. You have the theme of election. I always, I always marvel when people say, well, I don't believe in the doctrine of election. Well, Abraham did. Because God chose Abraham for no particular reason that we ever see. Um, Israel believed in election. God told Israel in Deuteronomy 7, I loved you before you existed. That's, that's election. Then you have the theme of the Exodus, God's purchase of his people. And we list that as a theme, not just of the book of Exodus, but of all of the Pentateuch. Um, because what happens at the end of the time of the Exodus, uh, God gives his law to his people. And that that happens um, right before the conquest, but we would put that in with the Exodus and with uh, all of the events that happened in that time period, that 40-year time period. Then you have the law of God, God's standards for his people. And if you've been at Grace for any period of time, I, I think you've picked up that the law of God is good. The law of God is not binding on the Christian, but it is, in fact, um, reflective of the, the character and the testimony of God. And so that's why we study from and we, we preach the Old Testament. It's God's standards for his people. Then you have the themes of tabernacle and priesthood and sacrifice. This is God's provision to make a way to himself um, despite sin. And this is something, that we're not familiar with this. We, we don't relate to that really well, so that's why we want to talk about it all the time. And uh, one of the reasons for preaching through the Pentateuch, uh, the tabernacle was the place you went to meet with God. Um, the priesthood was the means by which you could meet with God. And sacrifice uh, provided the, the propitiation, the, the sacrifice necessary to meet with God. And then you have the land. God's promise to his people. And I want to say this, I, can, I can't say this too often. If you are familiar with or have uh, dabbled in covenant theology at all, one of the hallmarks of covenant theology is that um, it, it downplays land. In fact, there are denigrating terms used in numbers of, of covenant theology, uh, theological sources that say things like, <clears throat> uh, uh, we're concerned with more than some little piece of real estate in the Middle East. How many Jews have died for some little piece of real estate in the Middle East? And how many promises do we have in Scripture of the land, the land, the land, the land, the land? It's all over the place. 
And so um, we want to be careful about that because the land, in fact, is going to turn out to be a major theme of not only the Pentateuch, but of uh, Genesis specifically. And we'll see that here shortly. So those are just some big mountaintop peaks of major themes in the Pentateuch. What is the purpose of the Pentateuch? What's the, what's the purpose behind it? There are multiple theories. I think there's only one that really holds the most water. And this is the purpose of the Torah, the Pentateuch. God chose Israel as the seed of Abraham to be the priestly nation that would restore mankind to its proper role as rulers for God over his created earth. That is a mouthful. If you want to understand that at a deeper level, then listen to those five messages, particularly the first couple um, that I did in Pentateuch series one. God chose Israel as the seed of Abraham to be the priestly nation that would restore mankind to its proper role as rulers for God over his created earth. How do we know this? Exodus 19.6, we talked about this this morning. God gave Israel their purpose. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What, what do priests do? We said this this morning. Anybody remember? What do the priests do? They point people to whom? To God. They point people to God. That's the job of a priest. They stand in for God. Um, If you compare that to the attitude of the Jewish leadership toward Gentiles in the time of Jesus, what what was their attitude toward Gentiles? It was hatred. It was disgust. It was it was a common prayer to for a for a Jewish man to say, "I thank you, God, that I am not a dog, I'm not a woman, and I'm not a Gentile." Horrible things. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to make God big to the Gentiles, not to look down their nose at them. But the Pentateuch tells the story of God choosing Israel through Abraham to be a nation that would then bring uh, the rulership of the earth back to mankind. And how would, how would that happen? It comes about through the chosen seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who would then be the one who could lead the Gentile nations to himself and eventually we will rule the world once again. So that's big picture Pentateuch. You can get way more than that if you go listen to those messages I told you about. Let's get into Genesis because we have a lot to do in Genesis. The Hebrew Bible titles Genesis simply in the beginning. A lot of the, the Hebrew Bible uh, book names are simply the first word. Um, Bereshith, it's just, that's the first word in Hebrew, in the beginning. Uh, the Septuagint, um, you're going to see this a lot if you haven't been familiar with this. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament done about 200 years before the time of Christ. And the Septuagint um, is often uh, <clears throat> abbreviated uh, LXX, Roman numeral 70, um, because of the tradition that 70 scholars put together that translation. But in the, in the Septuagint, it's called Genesis, which it comes from Latin for origin, source, or generation. The author is Moses. That is fairly undisputed until about 150 years ago when so-called Bible scholars began disputing everything. So we don't count that. The date of the events, this covers a large scope of time from creation to the death of Joseph in 1806 BC. By the way, as we go through this, um, these major titles I'm doing, Introduction, um, the next will be Historical and Theological Themes, we're going to always use those same headings for every book of the Bible. So you'll have that same sort of organization. So 
let's get to this because this is, this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Historical and theological themes. First theme, creation. The theme of creation begins and ends the Bible. The, the Bible is bookended by creation. Genesis 1 and 2 speaks of creation and Revelation 21 and 22 speaks of creation as well. And by the way, some have said, well, uh, the Bible can't be true because uh, Genesis 1 and 2 gives two different accounts of creation. Yes, it does. Genesis 1 is the account of creation from the viewpoint of God. And Genesis 2 is the account of creation from the viewpoint of Adam and Eve. It's very simple. It's like two people telling a story from opposite uh, ends of the room. And so the theme of creation is where everything starts. Why do we have creation? Creation is for God's own purposes and creation is for himself. Colossians 1.16 makes it very clear that the creator is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all things were created by him, for him, through him. And so we put our New Testament understanding to help us understand the Old Testament. Creation demonstrates to original readers and to subsequent readers the unparalleled power of God. And this is the Genesis 1 and 2. I cannot emphasize enough how important this is. Because if you, if you denigrate, if you put down, if you compromise, if you reinterpret Genesis 1 and 2 as being uh, somehow... Uh, uh, just an allegory or somehow a story that was told to help us try to understand something we really can't grasp. If we take it as anything less than literal or the worst of all, if we, if we take evolutionary theory and try to superimpose it on Genesis 1 and 2, well, now the question is, at what point do we start believing the Bible? Well, we have to start believing it in Genesis 1.1. If God isn't smart enough to write down what happened at the beginning, in a way we can understand, then he's not worth uh, following. But he is. He wrote it down exactly as it happened. Then we have the historical and theological theme of the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah. You had a promise that goes with the Noahic covenant. What is that promise? Never another flood. There won't be another flood. Every time you uh, see on the news flooding and hurricanes and all those sorts of things, yeah, there are some regional floods, but don't worry, it won't Uh, It won't cover the earth. There was a sign of God's promise, and that is the rainbow. And by the way, when God forms the covenant with Noah, this is the first time we see the term burnt offering. Genesis 8, verse 20. And so that's very important. That sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. How is it that, that a man may be right before God? It is through sacrifice. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant. God's covenant with Abraham. And I'm going to spend some time on that. I want to talk to you about, uh, first of all, how this developed. Because Abrahamic covenant is huge. The foundation of the covenant is found in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God called upon Abraham, and Abraham was to receive blessings and promises from God. And I know we're hitting a lot of information. Get used to it. That's That's what BTI is. That's what we do. The foundation of the covenant, God chose Abraham and he just called him. And there's a lot of mystery around that. Why Abraham? The Bible never tells us. It is simply one of the great illustrations of election. God simply chose. Then we have the making of the covenant. Genesis 15, God assures that that Abraham will have a seed. He will have children. He will have those coming after him. The sign of the covenant, 
Every covenant in the Bible, every major covenant has a sign that goes with it. The sign of the new covenant is something we do in our church once a month, and that is the Lord's table, the the body and the blood of Christ. That is the sign of the covenant. But the sign of the covenant, Genesis 17, was circumcision. There's a lot of debate as to why circumcision, um, and we won't speculate on that. But needless to say, um, it definitely was a sign that this, this covenant makes God in charge and mankind not in charge. And so there is a there is a, a humiliation to this to a certain degree, um, very much the same way that with the Lord's table, there's a sense of humiliation in two ways. First of all, the Lord himself was humiliated having to go to the cross. And second, we're humiliated in that we come to the Lord's table confessing our sins with humility and with our heads down. Right. So there there is a sense in which um, the signs of the covenant are given to let us know who's in charge and who's not. Then you have the purpose of the covenant, Genesis 18. And to understand the Abrahamic covenant, you have to put all of these passages together. That's why I've, I've listed them for you here. The purpose of the covenant is that all the nations might be blessed through Abraham through the mighty nation of Israel. And so th- this, is, this is huge. Uh, this morning we talked about the nations. Well, the Abrahamic covenant is the means by which it is the, the catalyst by which God will bless all the nations. And hopefully we'll be one of them. Uh, we're, we're in the course of history, we're a very, very young nation. We're still a newborn. So I don't have any, uh, I don't have any guarantees that there will be a United States of America in the millennial kingdom. We'll see. But the nations will be blessed. And where does the blessing come from? The blessing is from the covenant. Genesis 22, God reaffirms his intention to bless Abraham. And he says, because you have obeyed my voice. That's another topic for another time. It is a, an unconditional covenant. And yet God also says, because you have obeyed my voice. Does anybody remember in Genesis 22, what God put Abraham through to have Abraham prove he would obey him no matter what? Does anybody remember? sacrificing Isaac oh you guys are good you should come up here and teach that's awesome um, that's that's what he did and he reaffirmed that covenant now the question is well what if Abraham had chickened out and hadn't done that we don't know he didn't he he was righteous and then you have the reaffirmation of the covenant chapter 26 chapter 28 chapter 35 chapter 50 the covenant is reaffirmed to his son Isaac the covenant is reaffirmed to his son Jacob and frankly the entire Old Testament is a reaffirmation of the, of the Abrahamic covenant. So those are just kind of, that's the development of the covenant. I know we're going a little bit fast here. Let's get into the nitty gritty here though. Let's look at the, the details of the covenant, the elements of this covenant. And there's different ways to divide this. I've divided it into four parts. The first element we'll call blessing. And we divide that element into two parts. Um, Genesis 12 and Genesis 24, there's first of all personal blessing for Abraham. God said in chapter 24, I will bless you. This is exactly what took place in Abraham's life. Chapter 24 verse 1 tells us this. He has victory in battle. He has wealth. And then he will have a son. And that element is fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. Um, there, It's very much... Uh, like any other leader that God blesses, that that leader is used as a, an instrument of God's blessing to others, but that leader is also blessed himself. And then the second way 
the element of blessing comes into play is that the covenant is a blessing to the nations in eternity because of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a blessing to the nations in eternity. It is an everlasting covenant. This passage is the promise whose fulfillment extends all the way to the end of Scripture. Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, speaks of the healing of the nations. The Abrahamic covenant is why we're here today. It's why you're here. It's why you have come to know Christ, because of this blessing. So the first element is blessing. second element is nation. And I listed some of the... No, I didn't. Let me give you some... Uh, some references here. I, these slides are a little a little uh, thin. I'm not sure why. I need to go back and beef them up a little bit. Genesis 12, verse 2. Genesis 17, 4 through 6. And then pretty much read any part of Genesis 18, Genesis 25, Genesis 35. Uh, but if you go back through uh, under the development of the covenant, chapter 12, 15, 17, 18, 22, and all those others, you'll see the theme of nation there very clear, very clearly. What is a nation? Well, it's made up of families with a common ancestor and a common language. That, that is the biblical definition of a nation. And so God will form a nation through one man, through Abraham. And that nation, of course, would be Israel, named after his grandson Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel. And then you have, as I mentioned, how important this is. You have the theme of land. God told Abraham, go forth from your land to the land I will show you. He said he made him leave his home in Ur of the Chaldees. He's going to take Abraham from his land to a new land. How will God uh, bring his people eventually into this land that Abraham has always owned? Well, the curse of Noah to his son Canaan, to his son Ham rather, uh, whose, whose descendant would be Canaan, in Genesis 9 God curses Ham, but he doesn't say cursed be Ham. He says cursed be Canaan. And from Canaan would come all the peoples of the Canaanites. And what does God do? He gives the land of the Canaanites to the sons of Abraham. Genesis 1 through 11 kind of tells the story of how this all comes about, how it begins. And God has the right to do exactly uh, what he's doing. He will take the land from Canaan and he will give it to Israel. Let me put it this way. If you have, a, have trouble with what some have called the ethics of war, when Israel conquered uh, the Canaanites, aside from the fact that they were a heinous people who uh, engaged in everything from child sacrifice to idol worship of all kinds, how would you feel about somebody in your house? You go on vacation, you come back, and somebody's cooking scrambled eggs in your, in your kitchen. What would you do? You would say, you need to leave or something really bad is going to happen to you. That's, that's normal. That's okay. And so God used Israel to, to eradicate a people that was wicked and to kick them out of a land that didn't belong to them. They were squatters. And remember, the memory of God is very, very long. By the time we get to the conquest, it's been 500 years since God made that promise to Abraham. That's nothing. That contract, that covenant is still good. And so the land is, is hugely important. And then you have the fourth element, and that is the seed. The seed, and this is when it gets a little bit theologically complicated here. We'll spend a moment on this. The seed is the offspring. You can't just have one son and then say, I have a nation. A nation implies many children, many, many families. And so the multiplication of Abraham's descendants is necessary to form a nation. 
And at various places in some of these chapters, God gave Abraham promises. Your descendants will be like the sand of the sea, like the stars of the sky. That level of innumerability. (coughs) Excuse me. So first of all, you have the corporate seed. You have many, many descendants. And that, that's what forms the nation. That's what gets uh, the, the nation to the point where it's innumerable. That's why you have upwards of three, more, three or more million Israelites leaving Egypt at the Exodus. But then you have the element of individual seed. The seed can also relate to an individual. It's exactly what this term does in chapter 15. Chapter 21, Isaac is the means by which God will bless the nations of the earth. And so you have that, that the son Isaac, he is the promised seed. And of course, through him then, you have the second use of seed, and that is Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to chapter 22, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, your seed, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, I read that to you because Genesis 17 and 18 speaks first of seed plural, I will multiply your offspring, plural, and then seed, singular. In your seed, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In one man, in one child of Abraham. Now, how do we know this refers to Messiah? Well, verse 15 tells us, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham. The angel of the Lord speaks of Yahweh. He is Yahweh. He is God. And he says, by myself, I have sworn. I, have, I will greatly bless you. Multiply your seed. Seed in this context now is the multiplied seed, both of the nation and then of all who would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, it's very clear. This is the signature of God. The angel of the Lord saying, by myself, I have sworn. I'm signing this. That the Messiah will come, a singular seed. And then you have the universal blessing um, through the seed. What's the universal blessing? I I don't think you could have asked Moses and he would have been able to tell you in great detail because he didn't have a New Testament. He had never met the Lord Jesus Christ. I think if you try to picture what they would understand before the cross, it would be a little bit uh, muddy for them. But the universal blessing speaks to the fact that Israel was chosen to receive blessing to be a means to bless the other nations. Now, How does the Old Testament end? Does it end gloriously with Israel demonstrating the God of the Bible to all the nations and the nations flocking to them like they did to Solomon to hear about the wisdom of God? No, the the Old Testament ends chronologically with the dispersion of God's people. They failed. They failed in their mission. They became just like the nations. Instead of them affecting the nations, they were affected by the nations And so, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ has to come to make that right and to be the true Israelite who would then draw the nations to himself. So that's a that's a very broad view of the Abrahamic covenant. When we get to the theological portion of covenants, we'll go through that again in more detail and and hopefully it'll be a refresher for you.
Another theme in the book of Genesis is the power of God. And we'll do the rest a little bit faster. The power of God. Okay, if you've read, if you've read Genesis, I won't ask you to raise your hand. You should have read it by now if you're, if you're enrolled. Um, if you've read Genesis, call out some ways the power of God is demonstrated in the book of Genesis. There's the easy one. Creation. Okay, yeah, some of the old flood. That's good. Creation, flood, anything else? Let's say that again. He spoke. I thought you said smoke. I didn't know that that was. Yeah, he spoke. Okay, there's his power. Um, uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. What does he do? Confuses the language. By the way, why did he do that? He did that because the nations refused to do what the mandate to mankind is, which is to scatter, form nations, and populate the earth. Instead, they said, let's gather and have one nation. And he said, oh yeah, watch this. Boom, nations, because they couldn't understand each other. Any other demonstration of power in the book of Genesis? All right, we're coming right up to it. So, So it sets up for Egypt, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, you can read almost any chapter in Genesis and find the power of God. There is the flood. There is um, <clears throat> what God did with uh, Cain and Abel when he uh, put a mark on Cain such that people would not judge Cain because God had already judged him. Every chapter has it. How about, um, <clears throat> how about the, just the act of creation itself? God spoke, as David said, and things came into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, power everywhere. Then you have, say that again. Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, that that would be a firepower of God. Absolutely. So, so you can't read Genesis and come away thinking that God is the God that um, the unbelievers would picture him as today, as some sort of Santa Claus or namby-pamby uh, grandfatherly figure. He is powerful. The sovereignty of God. I said we would return to this. The sovereignty of God is, is almost could be said to be the, the theme of Genesis 37 through 50. Genesis 37 through 50, one-fourth of the book is devoted to Joseph. Joseph is our key understanding from Genesis of the sovereignty of God. Joseph, the, the really the only one of Jacob's sons, at least at that time when he was a young boy, uh, the only one of Jacob's sons who was a true God-fearer, who loved the Lord, and yet he was the one who was enslaved, who was taken to Egypt. Joseph's brothers, you remember the story, were scared after their father Jacob died that Joseph, now the second most powerful man in the world, is going to lay into them. That he could, he could do anything with them. He could have chariots run over them. He could have their families slaughtered. Anything and everything. And so his brothers come before Joseph in fear and trepidation. And what did he tell them? Genesis 50 verse 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. That is often called the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Genesis 50 verse 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Why? Because God is sovereign. And everything he does has a purpose. God has never reacted, ever. He's never uh, had to figure out a response. The only time he responds is when he is given a choice and he already knows what he's going to do um, no matter what happens. Then you have the theme of the sin of mankind. I told you that sin would show up in every book. Chapter 3, you have the curse. Chapter 4, you have the first murder. 
chapter 6, you have the state of earth before the flood as continually sinful. Mankind was so sinful that God said, I am sorry that I made mankind. It doesn't mean that he made a mistake. It means that he feels badly for what happened as a result. And mankind was so debauched that there was no point in even keeping them alive except for the family of Noah. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. People of God, the people of the earth rejected God in favor of a man-made religion. They created this tower so that they could reach to the stars and reach to the moon. Uh, funny enough, that tower was probably at most seven stories high. Like you could climb it in about five minutes to reach to the sun, to reach to the stars. But they rejected God for man-made religion. And interestingly enough, Babel related to the term Babylon is the term used in the book of Revelation to represent all man-made religion, Babylon. And then you have chapter 19. Sin is displayed in Sodom and Gomorrah. And from chapter 19 onward, you have sexual immorality as a major theme in all of the Bible. And one of the reasons listed uh, all through the New Testament that, that some will not see the kingdom of God because of their sexual immorality. Then you have the theme of the judgment of God. See also the same chapters as up there. The sin of mankind. Because with each of those, there's a judgment that goes along with it. What is the lesson? Sin will always be judged. There will never be a sense in which anybody will get away with it. But then you have the grace of God. How is it that that grace is brought out in Genesis? I I think it's, and hopefully this is becoming less prevalent, but in Genesis, A lot of churches, particularly Southern Baptist uh, traditions, a lot of Assembly of God traditions and and those that are a little bit more emotional, a little bit less Bible-based, the idea is put out there that grace was somehow a new idea God had beginning in the New Testament. Well, all this judgment stuff didn't work. Let's try grace. No, God has always been a, a God who judges and God has always been a God of grace. How do we see grace in the Old Testament? Well, we see the election of Abram, of Abraham, first of all, that's by grace. In fact, Genesis 15:6 is our huge proof that salvation in the Old Testament is exactly as the same as it is in the New Testament. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was reckoned to him in some older translations. That is grace. And then you have, for example, the choice of Jacob over Esau. Why did God choose Jacob? Uh, Jacob, in, in a lot of ways, was probably harder to deal with. He was, he was sneaky. He was uh, dishonest. And yet God chose Jacob over Esau. And so you have the grace of God. You have the grace of God in Joseph's life to, to give so much to Joseph, to do so much for him that he didn't ask for, didn't deserve. And then just for fun, I listed every instance of blessing in the book of Genesis. I would encourage you sometime to just read through Genesis quickly with the intent of looking for blessing, 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 blessing. And I think it'll be a, a benefit to you. So Torah begins with blessings, ends with blessings. Uh, and if you read uh, uh, Genesis and you sat down and read all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in one sitting, which is possible to do, by the way, it takes a few hours, but you can do it you would see that it begins with blessing and at the end of Deuteronomy, you have blessings as well. It is almost a microcosm of the whole Bible. But I wanted you to see that theme there. So what is the purpose of Genesis? 
the God of creation chose to bless sinful mankind through Abraham and his seed who will inherit what? The land. The land. We cannot spiritualize things. We have to say land. Ha'eretz. The land in Hebrew. In the beginning, God created Ha'eretz. The earth. The land. Literally, the dirt. It is important. The God of creation chose to bless sinful mankind through Abraham and his seed who will inherit the land. The, the cool thing about Genesis is that you get to the end of Genesis 50 and it, I, I believe it ends with the, the, the coffin in Egypt of Joseph. What does it make you want to do? You got to see what happens next. Because Genesis is the beginning. And it tells us that there is an end to that story. So just, um, just since this is our first session, we, we do... Introduction to the book, we do historical and theological themes, we'll do the purpose of the book, and now this is something you might not think you would get in church, but we're going to do literature, the literary structure, and I want to take a moment and talk about this, because we'll do this with every every Bible book. One of the hallmarks of terrible preaching is a complete ignorance of literary structure in the Bible. Um, terrible preaching consists of um, <clears throat> simply taking verses here or there, ripping them out of their context, paying no attention to what's before it, what's after it, um, how it's set into its actual book, into the covenant, into what testament and so forth, and simply doing some sort of moral lesson from that. Just as a matter of course, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on David and Goliath? All right. <clears throat> Now, I'll ask you to raise your hand again. How many of you heard a sermon on David and Goliath where the basic lesson was God will help you slay the Goliaths in your life? Yes. Is that the point of David and Goliath? No. The point of David and Goliath is that God promised Abraham that through him a seed would come. One of his descendants was a man by the name of Judah. One of his descendants was a man by the name of Jesse. One of his sons was David. And God promised David that through him would Messiah come. And so David, this short little kid facing a giant who could kill him with the blink of an eye, do you realize that all of redemptive history hung on that moment? And God being faithful to let a little kid throw a rock at a giant and kill him shows that his commitment to the coming new covenant is absolutely ironclad. And so what we don't want to do is ignore the important ways that the Bible is put together. And I, I use that digression just to show that things like literary structure and grammar and vocabulary and word usage all of these things are important and i can give you the literary structure of every book and i think it'll help you see that god is extremely organized he's extremely um, systematic in the way that he puts together um, his bible And as we go through the books of the Bible, you'll see some literary structures look familiar. For example, the literary structure of almost all of Paul's epistles are pretty much the same. It is doctrine followed by duty. It is uh, theology followed by what you do with that. It is orthodoxy followed by orthopraxy. That's his structure. Here in Genesis then, so when we talk about literary structure, I want to encourage you, don't check out at that point. That tells you how the book is put together. That's the blueprint. That unrolls the, the, the makeup of the book and it helps you read it more intelligently. There's a broad division in Genesis 1 
through 11, often called primeval history. You have creation, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the introduction to Abraham, or to Abram rather, and it transitions right there. And it goes to the second part, Genesis 12 through 50, patriarchal history. There are four generations that are highlighted in patriarchal history. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Those are the patriarchs. Now, I, I'm not asking this to test you. I'm just, I, I don't know. Uh, how many of you heard my message at the, um, at the Creation Steadfast Bible Conference where I preached on the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2? Anybody heard that? All right, you go back to the Steadfast in the Faith website. Go to um, that year, uh, that was two years ago. And I want to encourage you to listen to that because in 26 minutes, I tell you why God wrote Genesis 1. And it's not, uh, it's not to give us a science lesson. It's not, to, um, uh, it's not to impress us with anything except one thing. The point of Genesis 1 is to tell mankind that there is only one true and living God. And he is the God who created all things. And so for the Israelites who are receiving this book, Genesis, hearing it for the first time, on the plains of Moab as they're ready to uh, go into Canaan and to conquer the people that God has told them to conquer. Genesis 1 through 11 tells the broad, big history of how they got here. Creation, the flood, Tower of Babel, introduction to Abram. And then Genesis 12 through 50 tells them their history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. How does Genesis end? It ends with the death of Joseph and him making his son's or or his family promise, when you leave this land, take my body, take my bones with you. And now the Israelites are hearing this story from, uh, from Moses. And guess what? In the camp of Israel, on the plains of Moab, you could go find the coffin that held the bones of Moses because the book of Exodus is very clear that one of the last things Moses did was make sure, or did I say Moses? Make sure and take the bones of Joseph out. And so you could go in the camp of Israel and say, I'd like to go visit the coffin of Joseph. And so this tells the history, the broad history, how they got here, and then their specific history, how it got right down to them, to the Israelites. Now, there's more specific divisions that we call the ten Toledot. Ten Toledot or Toledoth. It means the generations of. And there's called this because that's how every sentence begins uh, that that has these divisions. So you have the ten Toledot, the generations of. And I'm going to give you more specifics on that as soon as you write that part down. This is how God chose to structure Genesis. By the way, so many Bible books, you're going to find that there are, there are structures upon structures. You, could, you can structure them in various ways. It's, every Bible book is its own work of genius. It's a work of art. And so you have the big, broad division, Genesis 1 through 11, 12 through 50. Then you have the 10 Toledot. And here they are. There's five each in primeval history and in patriarchal history. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, what happens right after that? Well, we see the entrance of sin, the sin of mankind. Genesis 5, verse 1. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. This is God's blessing now. Um, we're going to see through Noah. So we have man's sin, then we have God's blessing coming specifically is going to come through Noah. Why is the blessing of God coming through Noah? Because Noah essentially becomes a second Adam as the first and only uh, man on earth who has children. Then you have Genesis 6 verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. We have here God's recreation essentially of the earth. Um, There's a new start to the earth. Genesis 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And so now we have man's sin once again. Because what what does Noah have to do? He curses Ham. And we see sin once again in the world. God flooded the whole world, left only eight people. You think they could have eradicated sin. They, they could have huddled up and say, all right, if we just never sin again, then mankind won't sin. Couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Genesis 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. That is God's blessing once again. And that echoes the second Toledot. So you have God's blessing here, God's blessing there. So you see the pattern? Man's sin, God's blessing. God's recreation, man's sin, and God's blessing. And then we enter into patriarchal history, that large chunk of Genesis from 12 to 50. Genesis eleven twenty-seven. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. That is the Abrahamic covenant we're coming up to now. In Genesis 25, uh, <clears throat> 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. That is a non-covenant son. I've preached a couple of messages on this. Um, God still looks out for his non-covenant sons. Uh, if you wonder about the three wise men from the Orient, A, there weren't three of them, and B, they weren't from the Orient. Um, If you want to know what happens with them, go look online. I believe it was last year I preached a message on the three wise men. There weren't three, and they weren't from the Orient. They were relatives of Abraham. And they came to worship the one that they were related to. And so uh, we have those generations of Ishmael. Then you have Genesis 25, 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. God, or Abraham fathered Isaac. That is a covenant son. That is the son through whom the the covenant of God would come ultimately to Christ. Genesis 36.1, these are the generations of Esau. That's a non-covenant son, the brother of Jacob. And then Genesis 37.2, these are the generations of Jacob. Now you have Joseph, who is 17 years old. He's pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. How did that turn out? Well, it turned out pretty bad for him for a long time. But that's a covenant son. Not that Christ would come through Joseph, but but the fact that Joseph becomes ultimately the blessed son of Jacob. So pay attention to the literary structure of a book. And if you can grasp that before reading a book, I know you've read Genesis already before you got here today. But from now on, before you read a Bible book, read your BTI notes and understand the structure because it, it helps you see those mountain peaks that are so important. 
Now, the last thing we'll generally do in most Bible books is we'll look at interpretive issues. And I'm going to take a little time to do this. I know we're running long, but I have the, I have the option to do that tonight. So we'll run just a little bit long. Interpretive issues. And there is a bucket load of them in Genesis. I'm going to just go through just kind of some highlights here. First, the interpretive issue. What's the nature of Genesis 1 through 11? What's the nature? Is it myth? You ready for this? The majority of seminaries in the United States teach Genesis 1 through 11 as myth. That's just a fact. Some feel it's symbolic theology, stories made up to give explanations. The official position of the United Methodist Church and its seminaries is that Genesis 1 through 11 is man's view of God to help man understand God. Well, if God didn't reveal himself to us, how are we supposed to understand him in the first place? That makes no sense whatsoever. Or is it historical narrative? What actually happened? It is historical narrative. What actually happened? There's no literary distinction between Genesis 1 through 11 and then the rest of the book. You you don't see suddenly it changes language. It changes any sort of style. And there are massive numbers of historical features. There are, you ready for this? 64 geographical terms, 88 personal names, and 48 generic names. These are specifics. And by the way, you have 21 cultural items, things like woods, metals, buildings, musical instruments. Genesis 1 through 11 is reality. It is mankind. It is what actually happened. And by the way, just in case we're tempted to say, well, it's mythology, the New Testament confirms Adam as a real person in Luke 3. Did I give you uh, any? I didn't give you anything up there. The New Testament confirms Adam as a real person. The New Testament confirms Noah as a real person from the lips of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. So you want to say it's a myth? You better take that up with the Lord Jesus because he thought Adam was real and he thought Noah was real. How about this interpretive issue? The meaning of day, yom in, in Hebrew in Genesis 1 and 2. On the first day, God created. Well, what is it? Is it the day-age theory that every day represents an age of millions of years? That didn't come about until the mid-19th century. Some would say they believe the intermittent day theory that there's an actual day of creation but then millions millions of years pass between the days. You know what God would have said if that were the case? That millions of years pass between the, the days. That's what he would have said. How about theistic evolution? Theistic evolution is a heinous lie from the pit of hell that God started the process of evolution. Genesis 1 describes God getting the process started, supposedly, and then sitting back and letting evolution take its course. And then you have the 24-hour day theory, which just means what the Bible says. Evening and morning. How much clearer could God be? Evening and morning. And then you have the the Hebrew technicality, the numerical adjective, day number one in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, always means 24 hours. Sometimes we say in this day and age, and we understand that usage, but in the Torah, whenever the, the day is numbered, day number one, the adjectival use, it's always 24 hours, every time. And how about this? If there's anything other than a 24-hour day, then God is a liar. Because he said in Exodus 20, verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. 
and rested on the seventh day. There is no question. We have to go with the 24-hour day. And by the way, every single week you have proof that it was 24-hour days because we have this weird thing called the seven-day week, which doesn't fit into the lunar cycle exactly, doesn't fit into uh, uh, the way the earth rotates, it doesn't fit in anything. And we have to try that. You know, every four years we make an adjustment and leap here, right? Why is that? Why do we still have the seven-day week? Because of creation. It's still there. It cracks me up that nobody's been able to eradicate that. It's still there. Here's an interpretive issue. What does it mean that you were made in the image of God? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Some would say that the totality of mankind is a reflection of God. That, that all that we are reflects him. And, and there's, there's merits to that. Some get a little more specific to say the immaterial nature of man, the, the invisible part of yourself, your spirit, your soul, is a reflection of God. And that does hold some water until you look at the Lord Jesus Christ who held a hammer in his hand and hammered pegs and hammered nails. I, I, I think of that all the time. I love to work with wood and I love the fact that my Lord was a carpenter. I always wonder what he did when he hit his, his thumb with a, nail, uh, with a hammer. One of the two choices, he responded perfectly to it and didn't get angry or he was God and he just never hit his thumb with a hammer. So um, I don't know. I'd be curious to find out. But so that theory is limited that we're just like the immaterial nature uh, of God. Well, God is material also. He came as a man, and he will always be a man. Do you realize the Lord Jesus Christ has a body, and he will always retain that body for your sake so that you can relate to him? Amazing. I think the best way to see the image of God, and really the only one supported most directly in Scripture is the rule of mankind as God's representative over the earth. We are made in the image of God because we are made to be rulers. We are made to have dominion over the earth. That's what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 speaks of. The created one, one of the previous days to be ruled over mankind as the representative of God. We, we are created to rule over God's creation. We're the vice regents over the earth. We're told to have dominion over the earth. And put it this way, to animals, mankind is very what? Is very godlike in a way. One of my favorite things in the world, and, and this is gonna, may, might seem silly to you, but I think of Genesis 1 all the time when this happens. We like to sing hymns in our family. And whenever we sing hymns, our little dog, for some reason, comes and lays under the piano. She cannot sing, but she can be in the presence of those who can. And there is something, something glorious about that. Here's a key. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Literally, guard it. Guard it from whom? Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. They were to guard it. The Garden of Eden was the sanctuary. It was the holy place. Adam was the king. He was the priest to guard the holiness of that place as God's representative. Adam was the first priestly king and kingly priest. But when he sinned, he was cast out of the holy place. He was no longer able to serve, no longer able to guard, no longer able to rule. And so now the rest of the Bible is how God will work to restore mankind to the role of king and priest. That's what the image of God is about. Then you have the identity of the sons of God. 
Is that kind of creepy out a little bit in Genesis 6? That the sons of God came together with the daughters of men. You say, well, did they make some sort of uh, weird um, beings? Probably. Some say they were the godly sons of Seth. That makes no sense. There, there's, no, there's no point in Scripture to say that because there's no evidence at all. Some say they were dynastic rulers, these big kings of the earth. Doesn't say that either. You have the royal heroes interpretation. That, well, they were just the best fighters on earth, and that is true to a certain uh, extent, but the best and really the only interpretation that holds any water is what's called the angelic interpretation, that these sons of God were fallen angels intermingling with women. Do, does God allow demons to take the form of man? He does not allow that. And yet they did. Job chapter 1, we see the sons of God coming before the Lord. Who are they? Satan and his demons. Why are they called the sons of God? That, that sounds a little crass to us. Like, no, that's Jesus. They're called sons of God because they're created by God. Very simply. Now, how do we know that's the best interpretation? By the way, this is the oldest theological debate in history. This has been debated for about 2,500 years that we know of. There's no clear answer from the text itself, but based on the totality of the Bible, the angelic interpretation is best. Second Peter chapter 2, Jude, both these books speak of angels not keeping their first position, not keeping their first estate. In other words, crossing the boundaries that God had set for them. And how did they cross the boundaries? They appeared as men and they intermarried with the, with the women of the earth. And so God destroyed them and their offspring. And you might say, well, why do we need the totality of Scripture? When we read in Genesis 3 of the serpent, how long does it take for the Bible to tell us who the serpent is? Revelation 12 takes that long. And so you need all of Scripture He's called the serpent of old. One more, and we can do this one fast. What is the extent of the Noahic flood? Most seminaries today teach that it was regional, that the flood of Noah was the known world at the time, the area of the ancient Near East, the Mediterranean, and so forth. Now, who cares? What's the point of that? Theologians are constantly trying to find ways to make the Bible less supernatural and less glorious than it is. So what was the flood? The flood was global. I'll give you a simple answer and a complex answer as to why it was global. Simple answer is because God said so. That's what was going to happen. Here's a complex answer. Genesis 6 and 7 says every creature on earth died. All of them. Doesn't say all of them in Iran. It says every creature. You had a need for an ark big enough to live for a year You had the depth of the water, chapter 7. There's not a mountain on earth at the time that would peak up over the depth of that water. You have the duration of the flood going for for over a year, Genesis 7. You have the later biblical testimony, 2 Peter 3, verse 5. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. It doesn't say our region, it says the world. And then this is just a little side note, you have the worldwide tradition. Dr. John Morris collected flood myths and stories from over 200 different cultures. 
And we don't need outside sources to prove the Bible. The Bible doesn't need to be proven. It proves itself. But you had uh, peoples like the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Irish, African kingdoms, India, Central Asia, China, Korea, Malaysia, Australia, Polynesia, several uh, American, South American cultures, including the Incas and other uh, South American um, peoples. And they all have flood myths. They have stories. And here, obviously, pieces of the story are going to change, but just some interesting statistics from those, those over 200 that were collected. 88% of them says there, there was a favored family. 70% of them says they were saved in an ark. 66% say the flood was due to the wickedness of mankind, interestingly enough. 67% says animals were also saved. 57% says the survivors landed on a mountain. And 95% says the flood was worldwide. Now, some would say, well, the Genesis account of the flood is just another one of those stories. No, it's not. All those myths were written down because they were passed down through their families, through Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I mean, those guys sitting around the campfire look. Grandkids, have I got a campfire story for you? You tried to swim across that river. You thought that was hard? Let me tell you about a boat. And those stories, and as the peoples spread out, it's just like playing that game where you whisper one thing to somebody to the next to the next, and by the time you get to the end, the story has changed somewhat. But 95% of all of those flood myths say it was worldwide. Why is that important? Uh, external evidences don't prove the Bible. We don't need external evidence to prove the Bible, but it's important because God said, he would judge the entire world, and he did. That's important for us because God says he's going to judge every human being. And we should pay heed to that. We went a little over time. I won't have that luxury when we're back at 930, which I think is going to happen next week. I think you'll get an email for sure uh, to, to let you know. Uh, then I have to go, otherwise I'm not preaching. So um, we've got to take a little extra time. All right, you okay? We got through Genesis. How's your brain? I see a little smoke happening. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time to be together. Thank you for Genesis, for the beginning, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We are so thankful to you, Lord. And in Genesis, especially the first couple chapters, we get a highlight, a view, a, a, a preview of what our future will be, a glorious, perfect world with gardens and mankind ruling alongside God in a creation meant to give you glory and to give us pleasure. We thank you and we praise you, God. I pray for every person here that the book of Genesis and now as they continue reading in Exodus and in, on into the Torah would bless them and would change their hearts to be more and more godly, to be worshipers who love you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.